Hey gang, this episode of Paracosms is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook of your choice today by visiting audibletrial.com paracosms. Just a fair warning, this episode covers topics that some of you may not want to hear. Due to the nature of the alien films and renowned artist H.R. Geiger, the guy who created the iconic xenomorph, I'll be covering some violent and sexually explicit themes that are unavoidable in a study of this creature from outer space. A movie monster is what a movie monster does. Now is your chance to skip over to another episode of Paracosms. Maybe one about young wizards or spandex-wearing superheroes. If you're not the squeamish type, then stay tuned and learn a bit about this infamous alien species that has been raping humans to death for the last several decades. I am Arthur McMahon, and this is Paracosms. Back in 1977, director Ridley Scott was working on a romantic film called Tristan and Isolde. He had just wrapped up his directorial debut on a historical drama called The Duelists, and was in Los Angeles to promote the release of the movie. But as fate would have it, his colleague, Professor David Putnam, convinced Scott to join him at the theater to watch another new release of the time, a little movie called Star Wars. Scott remembered that experience in an interview with Deadline Hollywood where he said, by the time the movie was finished, it was so stunning that it made me miserable. That's the highest compliment I can give it. I was miserable for a week. I hadn't yet met George Lucas at that point, but I thought, fuck George. It was then and there, after watching Star Wars for the first time, that Ridley Scott dropped his current project, a romantic drama, deciding that he had to do something different, something bigger. Ridley Scott was offered the script to Alien, a sci-fi horror film that was being pitched as Jaws in Space, and he fell in love with it. The screenplay had been written by newcomer Daniel O'Bannon, a student of the USC film school who was broke and homeless before finding a buyer for his alien screenplay. Having used beach balls and toilet plungers as alien monsters in his student films, Bannon dreamed of one day creating a frighteningly real alien creature. He found inspiration in the Swiss surrealist painter H.R. Geiger, and used the artist's horrific biomechanical creations to illustrate his script. In an interview with David Canal of Tested, Bannon said, I was struck by the originality of Geiger's paintings. Not only were they frightening works, but they were absolutely, utterly original and beautifully executed. Looking at them, I thought, if anybody could get this guy to design a monster for a movie, 
it would be something no one has ever seen before. So I went in knowing that I had the cherry on top with the visualization of the thing. Bannon's space story, coupled with Geiger's hideous monstrosities, landed on the laps of studio executives immediately after the surprising blockbuster success of Star Wars. All of a sudden, 20th Century Fox was interested in pumping out more spacefaring fiction to ride along on George Lucas's money-making coattails. And Bannon's alien script was one of the only few relevant screenplays to choose from at the time. Through their collaboration on the project, Bannon shared Geiger's compendium of artwork, his Necronomicon, with Ridley Scott. After looking through that bewitching Book of the Dead, it was clear to Scott that H.R. Geiger should design the creature for their horror movie. Geiger arrived on set as an illustrator who was given the sole task of designing the alien creature. The artist wanted to create an original monster for the film, but Scott was infatuated with two specific Geiger paintings from the Necronomicon, which were titled Necronom 4 and 5. I had never been so sure of anything in my life, said Scott. They were quite specific to what I had envisioned for the film, particularly in the unique manner in which they conveyed both horror and beauty. The director insisted that Geiger follow the form of those specific pieces of art in the creation of the alien that would come to be known as the Xenomorph. Geiger's style was unique at the time. He created dark, gritty, and overtly sexual images that were often called futuristic, though the artist insisted that he drew his inspiration from the reality he saw in his daily life. This frightened the studio execs at Fox, who nearly pulled Geiger from the production. The studio considered him to be too over the top for general audiences, but Ridley Scott fought to keep the artist on the project. It was already set to be labeled as an R-rated film, what harm could Geiger possibly cause? After witnessing how much skill Geiger had for production design, the producers granted him the task of not only creating the monster itself, but also most of the set design. Everything from the alien planet to the derelict spacecraft, Geiger likened his flavor for design to what he called biomechanics. Aspects of his creations were fused between the natural and mechanical, blending beauty with horror, flesh with metal, and sex, well, that was everywhere. Bannon's original concept for the Alien film included violent scenes of interspecies rape, a theme that Geiger had the necessary special set of skills to exploit. His Necronom evolved into the Xenomorph, a monster with enough phallic notoriety to make Ron Jeremy blush. Before we get into his infamous alien monster, let's listen to an old audio clip where Geiger discusses his artwork. Maybe we'll get a better feel for why his creations are so creepy and sexualized. The ideas, they come sometimes from dreams or from, um, from bad things. And uh, I go to realize it and then I work it out. It's like a kind of Exorcism. Mostly people look at my paintings for the first time. They are a little bit uh, disturbed and they think that I'm completely crazy. 
Images in my paintings are evil, but you can't say that I'm evil. That's just the, the paradise for me, it's the hell. I like women very much, uh, but I'm afraid of sometimes. I'm afraid about suffering. Women make me often suffering so much that I stopped. And maybe I work it out on, on the painting. There are plenty of sex symbols and the death is in my painting so much and so often that I, uh, I can't see it. And sometimes if it's too heavy, my mother tell me, please go to change this a little bit because she feels shame about her son. And I feel shame because she feels and so I go to change. With my art, I just want to survive. That's mothers for you, always trying to keep you in line. Now that we understand Geiger a bit, let's talk about his most famous monster. The Xenomorph. It's a creature without a language. It's not cultured, not overtly intelligent, it doesn't fly. Xenomorphs are nothing like the little green men people once imagined were zooming around in their saucer-shaped UFOs. Nothing like the sentient, governable races found in the Star Wars universe. What Geiger created was a horrific, animalistic parasite that raped and killed in order to propagate its own species. The entire life cycle of a xenomorph is filled with sexual violence and little else. Let's go through the phases. You might be expecting me to jump right into the facehuggers, which are undeniably the most sexually graphic creatures in the Alien films. But we're not there yet. In the beginning of the Alien reproductive cycle, there are the eggs, hatcheries of which are laid by a queen, often in damp, dark places that humans unfortunately tend to stumble upon. Geiger originally designed the eggs to look like vaginas from which the facehuggers would launch out of, but the producers had a fit over the idea. They said it was too specific, that it wouldn't fly in Catholic countries. In an article with Cine Fantastique, Geiger talked about his battles with the production team, ultimately having to give up his desire for the vaginal display. He said, So, to satisfy Catholic audiences, I modified the egg, and made the opening a cross at the top. I like the opening of the egg in the film. They used real meat from a slaughterhouse. Mmm. Some concessions were made to the producers, but not many. Now we can jump on into the facehuggers. Or rather, they would likely be the ones jumping on us, latching onto our faces and forcing their embryos down our throats, orally assaulting the first living thing that they came into contact with. Somehow they survived the producers' criticisms. The design of the facehuggers is basically a fusion of two hands with two penises, 
one penis to shove down a victim's throat, and the other to wrap around the outside of the victim's neck. Perhaps some weird reflection by Geiger on human bondage fantasies or something of the ilk. The facehuggers inject their spawn into a host, which can be a human, a dog, anything that breathes and has an orifice to violate, apparently. The embryo grows inside of its host, quickly, and then through another violent penetration, it bursts out of the host's chest cavity, birthing itself by causing the death of the host creature. <laughs> This phallic theme continues as the xenomorph grows into its adult form. The alien creature has a long, sleek, phallic-shaped head, and when it attacks another phallus extends out of its mouth with another set of biting teeth, often punching itself through another creature's flesh. Geiger has not denied the sexual innuendos. In fact, he has celebrated them. In discussing the xenomorph, he has said, When the mouth is closed, it looks very voluptuous, beautiful. But when it opens its jaws, the tongue inside the mouth is more like a spear, also very suggestive, which penetrates the head with greater velocity, snagging bits of brain. From beauty to the beast. The xenomorph is just a giant walking penis, a monster born from society's darkest truths and fears. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. Survival. All clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Geiger's alien was a reflection of humanity's darkness, the pure primordial desires and impulses buried within the deepest pits of our inner selves. Looking at the harsh realities of war, we can see how easily humans succumb to their primal instincts. In the havoc and mayhem, we become animals, predators. Throughout human history, there have been countless travesties, many of them laced with a blatant disregard for human life, with destruction, pillaging, and violent rape, even necrophilia. The xenomorph is an animal, lacking the sentience to understand the destruction it causes. What was it Ash said? He admires its purity. He called it a survivor, unclouded by conscious remorse or delusions of morality. We, as members of the human race, don't have that excuse. We do have a conscience. We make judgments on morality. Yet, we have committed the same heinous acts as the xenomorph to each other, billions of times over. If we call the alien a monster because it does not have a choice in how it acts, does that mean that we are more loathsome than it? Because we understand the choices we make? The xenomorph species continues to surprise us though. Whatever unlucky being a facehugger latches onto ultimately becomes a part of the xenomorph that grows within it. In Alien 3, we were introduced to the dog alien. Yeah, a dog was violated by a facehugger and was killed in the resulting birth of a xenomorph. The dog alien looked like a dog and acted like a dog, a violent rabid dog. 
a dog that exuded all the worst tendencies a dog could have. It was a frightening beast for sure, but nowhere near as thought-provoking as a human xenomorph. Dogs are only so deep. We know what a bad dog is capable of. This new monster lacked the depth of introspection and philosophy that we were able to derive from its more human-like counterparts. This adaptive trend was continued in Aliens vs Predator, where a predator was impregnated by a facehugger, eventually spawning the first Predalien. This fusion of ultimate hunter and ferocious prey combined to make a fearsome beast that was more dangerous than either of its conjoined parts. But like the dog alien, it lacked depth. The Predalien was stronger, smarter, faster, more efficient. It had many of the characteristics required to be the most frightening monster in the Alienverse yet. It didn't quite raise that bar though. The Predalien moved further away from humanity, or a reflection thereof. It was purely another destructive beast, one that we had no connection to. Despite the creature's inherent power, the horror that was spawned in the first Alien movie was gone. The Predalien could cause havoc unlike any other, but it couldn't hold a candle to the dude-in-a-rubber-suit xenomorph that Ripley squared off against in the claustrophobic corridors of the Nostromo. That's because we didn't know what we were up against in the beginning of the franchise. H.R. Geiger and Ridley Scott have both been quoted as saying that the monster was the most important part of the first Alien film, an idea that apparently was lost over the subsequent movies. That first xenomorph was kept in the shadows throughout the first Alien film, shrouded in mystery. Parts of its shape were revealed in quick flashes, creating tension, unease, offering the audience a chance to wonder what it was that lurked in the darkness. This experience was lost in the following movies because we now knew what we were up against. We knew what the alien was capable of. That original intrigue the audience felt wasn't revived until Alien Resurrection came out in 1997. That's when we got to meet the newborn. It was only a brief experience, but in Resurrection, we finally had a new monster on our hands. One that we could relate to. One that we were wholly unsure of what it was capable of. The newborn was a new breed of xenomorph that had been fused with human DNA. Its skin was softer than the other aliens. It had a recognizable face with a nose and eyes that were sunken deep into its skull. It was a baby, a 9 foot tall giant baby with superhuman strength and a hostile temper given by its alien DNA. Ripley cared for the monstrous newborn because, in a twisted way, it was her child. This gave the audience a reason to care for the creature, though we also feared its untamable penchant for destruction. The newborn caused us to question ourselves, our opinions of what is right and wrong. It may have been short-lived, the decision of whether to kill the newborn for the sake of humanity was destined to go the way that it did, but it only took a few moments of uncertainty for the audience to care about the fate of the monster. That's all it took to bring us back to those same emotions we felt in the first movie, where we had to question and define what it meant to be human. The newborn, like the xenomorph, offered us the chance to see how far humankind had come from its primal past, but to also consider how easy it can be for us to revert back to those primitive ways at any moment, given the proper circumstances. Other variants of xenomorphs exist further showcasing the breed's adaptability and rampant interspecies sexual domination. The Prometheus movie from 2012 gave us the Little Deacon, which looks like a xenomorph, acts like a xenomorph, but because of studio politics it isn't called a xenomorph. It is though, come on. Alien Covenant introduces the Neomorphs, which are more natural, plant-like xenomorphs. And then there is a wealth of comics and toys that have spawned all sorts of variants all of which are feasible due to the way that xenomorphs can impregnate just about any living thing. 
We call the xenomorph an alien. We call it a monster. We do this because we want to separate the creature from ourselves, labeling it as despicable, disgusting, something unrelated to humanity. That's not the truth though, is it? It's not unlike ourselves. You know well enough what human beings are capable of. We can be disgusting, despicable, and far more terrifying than a xenomorph. We would make one hell of a movie monster. A human being. Now that's something that a family of aliens would fear. Imagine the movie titles. Man. Mankind. Man vs. Predator. Oh wait, Arnie already starred in that one. Science fiction is often used as a setting to introduce terrifying threats to humanity. It's like we use it to distract ourselves from the monster within, to trick ourselves into believing that we aren't the most evil presence in the universe. Do we need these sci-fi monsters to feel better about ourselves? To prove that humanity is worth preserving, worth fighting for? Let me leave you with this quote from the creator of the Xenomorph, Mr. H.R. Geiger. Nowadays, I think people like science fiction the same way they take or would like to take drugs or whatever to escape from reality. People need science fiction because it makes them happy. It shows them to areas they would be too afraid to explore otherwise. Many people find my designs horrible at first, but if they look at them a little longer, they eventually accept the world they had not seen before and admit that there is some harmony to it. It's just another kind of peace, but not so well known. I don't want to instill trouble into people's minds. This has been an episode of Paracosms. Geiger and Scott were right, the alien really is the most important part of the story. The Xenomorph is an iconic movie monster that is recognizable even to those who have no interest in the films. There is so much more to be said about H.R. Geiger's artwork, about Ridley Scott's films, about Ripley, and even about the Xenomorph. I've barely scratched the surface. The good thing is, that means there's plenty of material left for future episodes. If you want to explore more about aliens on your own, you can always pick up an audiobook from Audible. Remember, you can get one for free and help support Paracosms, by visiting audibletrial.com slash paracosms. There are actually a good number of highly rated alien books on Audible. There's even an Alien vs. Predator series with hundreds of ratings, averaging 4.5 out of 5 stars. I'm going to check it out myself. Once again, you can get a free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash paracosms. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this world, and I look forward to seeing you at the next.